Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Today, our Washington Roundtable is going to analyze what they think were the most consequential events of 2023 and what they tell us and what they tell us about what to expect in the year to come. Joining us today to review the year in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the President of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome back. And just a quick programming note, because I know some of you are wondering why the Washington Roundtable is airing on Wednesday. It is because uh, we had a whole series of uh, scheduling challenges. And so today was the day that we could get our team uh, together. Tomorrow, we're going to have the Cyber Report with Mark Montgomery and Chris Cleary, who are going to join us to discuss uh, the biggest stories uh, and events of the year. Uh, On Friday, we are going to have our Defense and Aerospace Report team, uh, everybody from Chris Cavus, Chris Cervello, Laura Winter, and J.J. Gertler uh, to talk about the most important stories that we saw on all of our beats. And on Saturday will be our business roundtable in the last show uh, of the year again until January 5 when we restart our normal coverage. All right, with that out of the way, it's the last show. Michael, uh, start us off. We're going to go around the horn. The charge uh, is... Uh, to talk to us about the most uh, or tell us what you guys each think were the most consequential events of 2023 and what they tell us about the year ahead. Michael, start us off on what's been a roller coaster year uh, that includes ousters, retirements, budget deals, increasing partisan rancor, uh, you name it. What were the things that stuck out for you in 2023? So here's what stuck out for me. First, if you look at last calendar year, not even last Congress, but last calendar year, 284 bills were passed by Congress and signed into law by the President of the United States. This year, only 22 bills were passed and enacted into law. And last year, you had some, uh, you know, some marquee legislation like the Infrastructure Bill, the Chips Act. Among those 22 bills that were passed this year, we had things like Protecting Hunting Heritage and Education Act, two bills renaming uh, VA clinics, uh, minting a coin to commemorate the 250th anniversary of the Marine Corps. Uh, and I would say the most significant thing that passed this year was the NDAA. Uh, we also uh, de- avoided default. Uh, we avoided a shutdown twice, uh, censured three members of Congress, uh, right. Jabal Momin for triggering a fire alarm in the Capitol, uh, Rashida Tlaib in response to her anti-Semitic rhetoric, and Adam Schiff, and for what I would argue, was censured for conducting a legitimate investigation uh, into Russia's connection to the Trump campaign. Uh, we expelled a member of Congress. As you mentioned, we ousted a speaker after spending four days and 15 ballots electing him, then spent 21 days uh, trying to elect a new speaker. Uh, we launched uh, Congress launched an impeachment inquiry. Uh, they agreed to a spending deal uh, and then went back on that deal, uh, which resulted in them wasting many, many weeks of time passing appropriations bills that could never pass the Senate. Uh, we held up uh, military promotions for 10 months over the abortion policy. And that that crisis is not over yet because uh, we still have uh, J.D. Vance and Rand Paul holding up still a lot of appointments to the uh, State Department. Uh, and we saw the Republican majority go from five seats uh, to three seats. So I think this uh, does not bode well for next year because next year is an election year, uh, right. which will make it hard to get anything of real substance done outside of hopefully uh, getting appropriations done and possibly a supplemental done earlier in the year. Um, I'm going to uh, go to Dove because I think he spent more time uh, in this town than than any of us have. But you're, you know, what do you what do you hang at least the failure to pass legislation, right? I mean, the very least Congress can do is to pass legislation that goes beyond minting a new coin uh, and you know hunting and a lot of other messaging bills. It's 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 not that there isn't a place for those. There is as long as you're doing your primary job of of legislating. Well, I attribute it to uh, two main things. I mean, one is um, the rise in, in partisanship. I mean, too many people look at this place as shirts and skins. And if the Democrats like something, they're against it. If the Republicans like something, then the other side's against it. Instead of thinking what's in the best interest of the American people and doing the job that they were elected to do. Two, I think there, there are too many people here 
who are concerned about their brand and you know their uh, social media followers than they are about, again, the job they're elected to do, which is every morning when you wake up, how do I make Americans' lives better? Now, there are people like that still in Congress on both Republican side and Democratic side who are here and are committed to that, but that number is shrinking. And I also would add a third thing. I think it's also the pall of Trump hanging over all of this also makes it very, very uh, a lot harder for the Republican Congress uh, to function uh, because Trump has really altered uh, the party, uh, much of it away from a party of policies, principles, and ideas, more uh, to a cult of personalities. And I think that's an internal fight among the Republican Party now because there are still a lot of them that see the party as a party of principles, policies, and ideas, and they're struggling at war to define themselves. Dove, what what are some of your uh, takeaways? And because you've spent, uh, as I mentioned, uh, quite a few years in this town, uh, ultimately, what 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 stood out this year as the needle movers? Michael has already addressed this, but I I just recall that Senator Dan Inouye, who was very close to his Republican counterpart Ted Stevens, once said to me, "You got to give a little to get a little on Capitol Hill." That's how legislation gets passed. And as Michael said, it just hasn't happened at all. So that's one that has just jumped out at me because when I was comptroller 20 years ago, I worked with both sides because I had to work with both sides and both sides worked with one and not with each other. The other big one that has jumped out at me this year is Tupperville's behavior because people keep thinking it's not about uh, that it's rather it's just about promotions. It's not. It's about families. And what bothered me more than anything was the fact that a lot of military families have special needs children. And this guy couldn't care less. And when it wasn't about abortion, it was about woke officers. It was about whatever. And to hold and and part of it is that the Senate remains uh, maybe a 19th century institution that absolutely refuses to give up the notion that one senator can put a hold on the whole world. And had they truly changed that, this mess would have ended months and months ago. I think the Senate has to reform itself. I think that goes to uh, not just Tuberville, but a lot of other appointments, promotions, that are held up for months on end. Uh, Just take a look at the Defense Department's policy shop. They don't have an undersecretary. They don't have a principal deputy undersecretary. Uh, How do you do business like that? Something has to give. I would agree with you that uh, at least there should be uh, a measure of bipartisanship at the end of this. And again, focus on what uh, really is important. Uh, Jim, I want to I go to you, right? I mean, one of the looming stories of the year continues to be the Ukraine war. We've discussed on this program numerous times uh, the uh, importance of uh, not letting Russia win, right? In this contest, uh, Ukraine has to win and Russia has to lose and be seen to lose. Whereas we discussed last week a little bit of Vladimir Putin's sense that, hey, look, I'm winning. It. And we heard that on yesterday's program uh, from uh, Gene Rumor uh, of the Carnegie uh, Endowment, who was on the program with Sam Bendet uh, of the Center for Naval Analyses on yesterday's program. And we discussed that in detail. From your standpoint, what have been sort of the needle moving stories uh, when it comes to the Ukraine war, Europe's response or Washington's response over the past year? Well, I think I'd have to start off with something that Michael and Dove uh, touched on here uh, in some ways, and it's how our politics have changed just in the course of a year. Uh, in January of this year, uh, there was a uh, you know full-throated, uh, on the whole, full-throated support for Ukraine assistance, a lot of uh, hope uh, looking ahead to the offensive, uh, a lot of talk about how bad the Russians were, uh, how uh, we've so misjudged them, et cetera. Last January could not be more different than December, uh, where we are today. Uh, when uh, the Republican Party has just flipped itself. Uh, yes, back in January, there were re- Republicans that were uh, extremists, but it was truly a small group. And the and the and largely in the Senate and the House, the Republicans were pro-Ukraine and working towards that end. And now we find ourselves uh, in a place where we can't even get an assistance package agreed, of a, a package to, to the floor of the House for a vote. Because the Republicans are holding it back, I just can't believe it. And 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 on top of that, 
there are the, the majority Republicans who know better and they're not doing anything uh, to rein in these extremists who have captured the House. Uh, and so that has has now manifest in how we're looking at Ukraine. We've gone from a January of this year with Putin, uh, you know, hiding out in the bunker, you know, in the Kremlin to now crowing on on television uh, that he's got the Ukrainians on the run and wobbliness in Europe and in Washington. So if there's anything that I think this past year in terms of Ukraine, in terms of of grabbing the headlines, it's it's the reaction and the American political system of the Republican Party and how it is something that I never thought I would see, uh, something that was pro-Putin uh, and something that was pushing back on helping Ukraine maintain its, its freedom and independence. It's just a shock. And hopefully early next year, uh, that needle will move uh, once we we have uh, some form uh, of, of uh, border uh, measure. Uh, Patrick, uh, the Indo-Pacific has been sort of an overwhelming focus for this administration. So even though, you know, it's been working on Ukraine and since October 7, working to support Israel and both of these conflicts take bandwidth, at the end of the day, they're still focused on the Indo-Pacific. Uh, there has been a little bit of a warming of uh, relations uh, with uh, the Chinese, uh, even though the Chinese continue uh, to misbehave. How has that needle moved, right? I mean, what what have we accomplished? What have we seen? And what's your assessment on what the biggest stories of 2023 were? Because each year has its own inflection points uh, at, at the end of the day. What, what, what stood out for you? Well, to start from the specific to the general, if you think about the spy balloon incident that derailed U.S.-China relations in the beginning of the year um, and, and deepened distrust, and then finally at the end of the year, a month after uh, Xi and Biden met in San Francisco, there are reports that the Chinese have pulled back from uh, dangerous operations of platforms, aircraft and ships from U.S. platforms in the near seas and airspace of China, at least for the past month, but they haven't done that against Taiwan or they haven't backed off the Coast Guard or maritime militia coercion against the Philippines and others uh, in Southeast South China Sea. So if that's the specific uh, year um, about U.S.-China military-to-military relations, it suggests that we made uh, some very narrow progress, um, but it's not really stopping the potential for greater coercion and gray zone conflict or open conflict over Taiwan or in the South China Sea. And indeed, those are two major flashpoints uh, that are flashing for 2024. And have we rounded any discernible bend with the Chinese or is this a, you know, sort of the Chinese are, um, I don't think this administration is being duped like the critics uh, suggest it is, but, but is, is there a change at all in the vector as far as you're concerned? or not? Well, if you're China, it, it helps when you surround yourself with Russia and North Korea and Iran, you look you look like you're better behaved. Um, and, uh, and that's sort of what they've escaped with this past year. I think uh, China's also facing a very rough beginning to Xi Jinping's third term. Uh, you know, he, uh, after the 20th Party Congress in October 2022, um, he he has had a rough time, both with the post-COVID economy not rebounding um, and, and even having to downsize the Belt and Road Initiative, greenwashing and, and digitizing it to, to keep his banner project alive. He still has his global security initiative to say he's uh, standing shoulder to shoulder with Russia and, and North Korea and, and Iran and others. But in reality, Xi Jinping is uh, fighting a battle on many fronts, including at home, not even having the kind of party leadership uh, sort of uh, protection that he was hoping he's had to replace so many people. I think um, it's really China's weakness that has helped us out in 2023. And the question is, what happens in 2024? The outlook for China's economy in 2024 and 2025 is is not bright. Um, and, uh, and, and that's a constraint on China's behavior. But uh, the fact that China has chosen its own set of rules when it comes to drawing boundaries, navigational rights, who has access to resources, those are uh, sort of uh, markers for potential conflict in the coming years. So no matter what the Biden administration did or does, um, and it did one thing really well, it did alliance uh, politics very well, 
um, overall, it gets, you know, it gets high marks for really bringing together allies and partners. Although for the U.S., we ended on a down note by having India creating uh, new tensions in, in this really strategic partnership because of its Sikh separatist ambitions. Uh, that was uh, very diplomatically put as somebody who's got a lot of uh, diplomatic experience, <laughs> Patrick. I think I think assassinations on Canadian and American and, you know, an assassination as well as an attempted one uh, on American and Canadian soil is a little bit more than tensions. But, yes, uh, they have they have uh, stoked uh, worries, uh, ultimately. Um uh, Dove, I want to go to you. I mean, obviously, one of the biggest and certainly most tectonic stories of the year uh, were the October uh, 7 terror attacks, not just for Israel, but for the Middle East, uh, as well as for domestic politics and the reverberations uh, continue. And I'm going to go to Michael uh, in a little bit to sort of get his uh, polling sense. But walk us through the dynamics of this and how this is going to really loom large, right? Because there were a lot of subtexts to this. Um, the Israeli population has shifted to the right. Some very good reporting on that. Um, the Iranians, a terrific story in The Economist, which I commend to uh, everybody to read, that there might be actually a tectonic shift underway in Iran, uh, where the hardliners might actually be softening, which could change the dynamic for a whole variety of internal uh, reasons, uh, as well as climate reasons and, and, and the like, right? I mean, for the first time ever, we had an uh, Iranian supreme leader go to the United Nations and, and say, we need a two-state solution, which is an implicit understanding that the that Israel would be would be recognized. Walk us through how all of these dimensions are playing and are actually resetting the board uh, potentially for next year. Well, let's start off by the fact that uh, until October 7th, Israel was a bitterly divided country. Uh, Netanyahu, uh, the prime minister, who's only uh, objective in life is to stay out of jail, uh, proposed what he called a series of reforms that would uh, defang the Supreme Court and essentially allow passage of legislation that would protect him. Uh, that led to weekly and sometimes daily demonstrations by hundreds of thousands of people. That all came to an end on October 7th. Uh, the uh, Hamas not only killed over a thousand Israelis and what really jarred the Israelis was that it was on their soil, something they never expected. And, of course, took over 200 hostages, of which 140 are still there. Um, the Israelis uh, are becoming increasingly isolated. Uh, basically, they have only one country and really just one man in a way supporting them, which is Joe Biden and the United States, uh, a Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire as thousands. We don't know if it's 15,000 or 18,000 or 10,000, but thousands of Gazans uh, have been killed. Um, thousands, hundreds of thousands have been displaced. And Netanyahu uh, has essentially uh, reversed what ought to be the priorities of his country, which is number one, uh, to uh, bring back the hostages and only then number two to get rid of Hamas, which he's not going to be able to do anyway unless he goes with a two-state solution that President Biden has pushed, as had every president since 1979, uh, and he's rejected that. And so without that and without stopping the settlements expansion and in fact stopping the crazy settlers who are running around with guns, uh, terrorizing Palestinians on the West Bank, Hamas is just going to continue to function. And if it won't be Hamas, it'll be a Hamas by a different name. So the Israelis have to face up to a very, very difficult set of choices that up to now they haven't. In the meantime, uh, what's going on around the world and especially shocking in the United States has been an unbelievable increase in anti-Semitism. Uh, sympathy for the Palestinians, which a lot of Jews, moderate Jews have, uh, has essentially bled over into anti-Semitism, trouble on the campuses, trouble in uh, some uh, you know, and some corporations, uh, really uh, a, a spike that hasn't been seen probably since the 1930s when the types of uh, Father Coughlin and others, uh, Lindbergh, were you know essentially pro-Nazi and, and anti-Semitic. 
Uh, it all hangs together. I think uh, Chuck Schumer made an impassioned speech uh, to his own party uh, to stop this because so much of this is coming from the left. While, of course, at the same time, you've had an anti-Semitic strain on the right for a long time. Uh, so that is all tied together with what's going on in Israel. Uh, but again, Netanyahu seems uh, he may say a couple of words, but he's indifferent to all of that. Uh, so how that plays out, uh, you know, we just don't know. The suspicion is that even Joe Biden is running out of patience. His his polls are sinking. I, I guess Michael will deal with that, especially amongst young people. He's got problems in places like Michigan, where Arab Americans are going to vote against him or stay home. Um, all of this is is tangled up with this war. And even the, the Houthis have gotten into the act by firing at uh, at ships uh, and, and hundreds of them uh, in uh, the Red Sea. Uh, and uh, to to that effect, uh, the, uh, the Secretary Austin just organized a new operation of 10 countries to deal with the Houthis, because, again, the Houthis want to widen this war. Uh, that is not that is exactly not what the, the West and the United States want. And maybe that ties in with the Iranian somewhat change of stance. The Iranians may be worried that the Israelis are, you know, they'll turn on Hezbollah next and maybe Iran after that. And uh, Iran may not have a nuclear weapon, but everybody knows the Israelis do. Uh, I, I, I think that that's actually a fascinating uh, dynamic that all of these militias that they created are causing their degree of trouble but the home team is going, eh, you know, not necessarily uh, as uh, as encouraging of them, whether it's worried about it, uh, both an external strike uh, because, you know, right. I mean, the crazy landlord strategy does have uh, unfortunately can be devastating if you're a civilian being caught in a crossfire, but then can also message to people in the neighborhood. Hey, I'm serious this time and I'm going to bust, you know, knock your teeth in. Uh, could could also have uh, a moderating uh, impact. Um, Jim, um, give us your sense from a European perspective, right? At first, many European nations, and I think, uh, you know, almost universal sympathy uh, for Israel and the importance for Israel to defend itself and calls for support. But some of those have moderated, especially as this campaign has gone on. Uh, I think France has done a terrific job sort of showing solidarity with its uh, uh, Jewish uh, population, right? The largest concentration of Jews in Europe live in France, uh, and uh, the largest concentration of Muslims in Europe live in France uh, as well, right? With leaders trying to transmit this message uh, in a secular way that we're all uh, French uh, at the end of the day. But how does this dynamic play out, do you think, over the next year in terms of changing sort of European um sympathies and support and a concern even among Israeli friends is whether the Israeli brand is being damaged in a way that becomes very difficult to repair at the end of the day to what Dove was saying. Uh, you know, Israeli friends of mine still believe in two state solutions, uh, still uh, are concerned about the plight of innocent people that are caught in the middle of this, even as they mourn their own relatives and worry about their own children who are serving uh, in the IDF. Anyway, sort of more broadly, talk to us about how the European dynamic is is playing and is going to play out, you think, um, you know, or, or, or is changing in some fundamental way in 23 that's going to affect 24. Well, I think, uh, as we've seen, anti-Semitism has, has always been a problem in Europe. That's not something that's new, as we know. Uh, and I'm not just talking about Germany and the and World War II. You know, I'm not talking about the Holocaust here. Uh, this has been a problem in Europe, uh, uh, as, in, as in the United States, but particularly in Europe. And I think what we're going to see more of uh, as this war drags on and it becomes uh, more and more hard to take, in terms of the humanitarian aspect to it, uh, that uh, there's going to be a rise in this uh, in anti-Semitism and a lot of pressure on European governments uh, to call for a ceasefire like the Brits and, and the French have just done. Uh, and it's going to hurt the Israeli cause. It's, it's going to hurt uh, in the United States, too, uh, and for a lot of unfair reasons, too. There's still, uh, I think, among the younger generation, uh, not a full grasp of the history and the context behind what we're seeing unfold there. They're just seeing the, the photos and hearing the stories of the of the human trauma that's going on there. And uh, 
And so they're drawing conclusions from that. So I think I think we're going to see next year, as in the U.S., uh, we're going to see uh, the war in Gaza begin to really impact uh, Israel to the point where, uh, uh, you know, I don't think there's going to be, uh, you know, in terms of a two-state solution, there isn't any other solution uh, than that, I think, in terms of people in Europe uh, and, and, I mean, particularly European governments. But I think what we're going to see is a lot of pressure that we are not going to see a solution there begin to take root with this Israeli government that we have right now for the, exactly the things that, that Dove is just laying out of settlers and Netanyahu and what his goals are. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure uh, from European governments uh, that he's got to go and they've got to find a two-state solution that's going to work. I th there's going to be an understanding, I'm sure, uh, among many, that, uh, uh, that, 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 uh, that Europe is going to have to come in and pay for some of the re so the the uh, reconstruction and some of the healings, maybe provide forces of some type for peacekeeping. Well, however, this is this comes about. But I think I think Europe is not going to play that kind of role um, if to with a Netanyahu government. Uh, I, I, some will. I mean, Hungary. We'll see where they go. But on the whole, in terms of Europe, uh, that this next year is going to show. Um, increasing pressure to 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 get a new government in into Tel Aviv, uh, and to begin to work seriously on a two state solution, uh, and and to and to try to find a way to stop the carnage. Um, I, I I find it interesting that you know we we have uh, you know so many people not necessarily we uh, on this program right you know all the time Vladimir Putin's over he's leaving uh, and the sense of oh Bibi you know he's over and he's leaving and I don't think uh, Bibi Netanyahu is going anywhere anytime soon any more than Vladimir Putin is going anywhere nor do I think Xi Jinping uh, is going anywhere uh, either. Um, oh, Vago, oh, you're so right. Um, Look, uh, it, and I think I've mentioned this on one of your previous podcasts. In 1973, when they had the Agronaut Commission after the Yom Kippur War and ultimately Golda Meir uh, resigned, even though it wasn't her fault, um, that commission was appointed by the cabinet. Well, Netanyahu dominates right. his cabinet. And so there may not be a commission at all. This guy might be prime minister for three years. I mean, we are looking at Nero fiddling while Rome burns. No, I, um, I but, but go, what go I, ahead. I'm sorry, Jim. But what, but what I would say is that if, if uh, we're going to, if Europe will participate in paying some of the bill, uh, whether it is in terms of reconstruction or in terms of political support, however, that might be manifest. I, I, I think I, I would find it hard for them to sign on to something uh, while we have uh, Netanyahu calling the shots right. uh, or, or not calling the shots, as it may be. I think I, I understand what you all are saying. You know, he's going to be there. He's not going anywhere. It's going to be three years. But I think I think whether it's the, in the U.S. or it's in Europe as well, I think it's going to be really hard for countries to sign a check for a lot of money uh, to get the Gaza standing back on its feet. Uh, when you have uh, Netanyahu in office, particularly if the if the next few months, as we get into the new year, we see uh, the, a continuing indiscriminate bombing and the things uh, that that people are having a hard time taking now. I would also point out, right, Bibi Netanyahu is no gold of my ear uh, in terms of knowing that you know whether it was her fault or not, she was the head of government at an important time at an important crisis, and then resigned. Uh, as a as a consequence of that. Right. I mean, I think we're past the days when leaders uh, do what Willy Brandt did uh, or any one of a number of politicians who say, look, it's it's time to call it because uh, something unfortunate happened on my watch. Um, Patrick, um, you know, I want to get your sense on geostrategically in, in the Asia uh, Pacific, how I mean, are there going to be any lingering repercussions of this war in the Middle East in that region? A region where uh, there is still, you know, a, a, a lot of very predominantly Muslim countries and large Muslim uh, communities. Probably. Um, it's certainly one of the major external events external to the Indo-Pacific that's going to continue to have potential influence on U.S. strategy and influence in the region. For instance, think about the upcoming election in Indonesia. 
um, strongman Prabowo may come to power. Um, and, uh, and and that could be actually an opening for U.S.-Indonesian relations in a way. But if relations with Muslim-majority countries sours over um, the fact that the U.S. is trying to protect Israel against terrorism, that could make it very difficult, especially if there's a Trump administration back in power that doesn't want to do business with Jakarta. So that's one instance where we could be relegating the largest player in Southeast Asia uh, to uh, cooperate with China rather than to work with us uh, when we need to be building up the strategic capital in the region. Um, but there are other ways that this could play out. I mean, I think in general, if we just roll back the tape on the Biden administration's international security policies over the last three years, we have not slowed down the intensification of major power rivalry. In fact, it's been, it was predicted and it's happened. There's been rising uh, gray zone activity, but there's also been rising conflict when you think about what's happened in Ukraine, what's happened in the Middle East. And so therefore, it's hard to say that global order is not fraying and fragmenting. It seems to be fragmenting, even if it's still hanging together. Um, and um, that's hurting U.S. power and influence. So everything that's happening in the world um, that breaks down order ultimately is hurting the perception that the U.S. is the answer to bring together countries to solve global problems. So we have to somehow find a way out of these conflicts, um, protecting our allies and partners, and then uh, keeping our eye on the ball, the fact that Indo-Pacific countries still do have so much technological, political, and demographic power for the coming decades. And a quick reminder to our audience to check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Chips, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host uh, with uh, JJ Gertler uh, from our team. Michael, I know October 7 um, had a very profound effect on 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 you and uh, Americans everywhere, whether they're Jewish Americans or 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 not. Um, whatever you want to comment on that dynamic and how it's uh, unfurling and what it means next year. But if you could also tie it to the president's declining poll numbers, that even as he exhibits international leadership, whether it's in Ukraine, Asia or uh, the Middle East and support for Israel uh, or whether the economic picture is steadily improving, his polls are not going up. They're going down to the point where now there's genuine uh, alarm. Uh, some of those conversations I had uh, at your uh, re reception, but other holiday receptions uh, across town with members, uh, uh, you know, kind of give us your sense on both of these dynamics and what all of this potentially means politically next year uh, from your reading of this. Sure. Well, first, I agree with Dove. Right? I think one of the most surprising things of post-October 7th world is the rise in anti-Semitism seen around the world and also here uh, in the United States. And you know, I think uh, you know this, this, this sympathy for the Palestinians in many cases is really fake outrage because uh, it's an excuse for anti-Semitism because those same people weren't protesting what were happening to the Rohingya in Myanmar or the Uyghurs in China or what's happening in Sudan or let alone protesting uh, the horrible abuses of what the Russians are doing in Ukraine, not only to the Ukrainian people, but also to the POWs that they've been capturing and the kidnapping of their children. So I think, you know, that's been, I think, the, the, the biggest surprise. And I think that's really going to hurt uh, the Democrats because I think it's caught a lot of people off guard how much hate and hypocrisy there is on the left. And that will really ignite the culture wars for next year. I mean, we saw uh, the hearings before the Educational Workforce Committee uh, earlier this month. Uh, where Elise Stefanik was questioning uh, the three university presidents. We talked about that in a previous podcast. That is now the most widely watched congressional testimony in the history of Congress. It is over 1 billion views. Uh, and that investigation is now widened. And I will see, well, I think we'll see a lot of assaults next year on uh, this whole you know, DEI movement because it doesn't, it, it, people say they want diversity, equity, inclusion, except when it comes to, to Jews. And I think the Republicans will, will seize on this next year. And, I, and this will uh, continue to hurt, I think, Biden's poll numbers, not only among independents, but also hurts them among his, the progressives who now are very angry at Biden for supporting Israel, who is our ally and as he should be supporting. Uh, I do think, though, we're still over a year out. I find Biden's polls concerning, but I'm not alarmed yet. Uh, I think Trump is now a lot of white noise in the background. And now he's he has made some extraordinarily... Hitlerite statements of his own, right? Every time you're talking about poisoning the blood of a people, exactly problematic right. terrain. 
Exactly. So now he will be front and center, uh, unfortunately, most likely as a Republican nominee, where he's, as you said, you know, not only making Hitler right statements, but also, you know, uh, uh, praising America's a- adversaries like Putin and Xi and, and, and Kim Jong-un and even you know, praising Hezbollah, you know, uh, earlier uh, in the year. So uh, I think that when voters are reminded, oh, gosh, do I want to go back to this, that you know, the choices may not be good choices, but I think uh, that will help uh, Biden in the end. But look, the third party candidacies that are out there could also derail Biden. So there's still a lot of unknowns out there. But I, I also think the Democrats have to do a better job of not only supporting Biden because he is going to be their nominee, but also taking credit for some of the things that they've accomplished. We talked about what little was right. done this year in Congress. They need to talk about the things that they've done. I mean, the, the omnibus they passed last year, uh, the chips, the, the chips bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure bill. They need to talk about the things they've done for America and the things that they're going to do if they can maintain the reins of power. Um, Let me ask you, though, right. um, For some. It was not an accident that Elise Stefanik is the one who did this right. And everybody's got their dream team and it's like, oh, you know, it'll be Trump and Nikki Haley, which is never going to happen. But Trump and Elise Stefanik could happen. Right. And this is where she becomes an important foil and where I think Republicans are almost always smarter. I, I don't mean to be judging. So to, to those Democratic uh, listeners uh, we have, they tend not to be as strategic in how they play this. Right. It was not an accident. All of those college presidents should have known exactly what was going to happen at this thing. Right. It's theater. It's not a legalistic uh, uh, episode. How does this position Elise Stefanik and play into uh, Trump's plan to get back in the White House? I disagree. Right. Elise Stefanik is a member of the Education Workforce Committee. She was there like other members were there. Her questioning just happened to get a lot more attention than the others. A lot of the questions she asked were asked by other members as well. But Say what you want about Elise Stefanik. Elise Stefanik is Harvard educated and very well spoken. And, you know, cross-examine these uh, these witnesses. These witnesses handled that very poorly. Right. These, you know, you may I have said you. I were, didn't say she right. wasn't smart. I'm just no, saying, no, was there right. a plan that, I, to be able to position office. her as a vice no, presidential no, candidate? Not, not not at all. Not at all. Right. Okay. Look, I'm sure Elise Stefanik is interested in that. But a lot of other people are. Right. And and that's kind of the fun of the whole political game. Right. Who's going to be the vice presidential pick? And we all guess and we're almost always wrong as to who it's going to be. So with Trump, uh, look, Trump is when he picks somebody, he's going to pick somebody who's not going to overshadow him. All right. And I think at least Stefanik could. So I don't think she's a likely pick for him uh, for vice president. You know, if I had to make my my guess, my prediction, I think he's going to pick Tim Scott from South Carolina. But that's just a shot in the dark. Um, we've got about 10 minutes left uh, in this uh, year in review program. And I wanted to give you each an opportunity to talk about actually the much smaller stories that we saw, right? I mean, we're talking now about the geostrategic stuff. What were some of the smallest, smaller stuff you guys saw that you think was was noteworthy and will be uh, impactful uh, into the future? Duff? Well, um, if you guys want to weigh in on the political stuff, you're welcome to. Uh, but I also wanted to just sort of shift gears to see whether or not we we're we're leaving behind anything that we should also be discussing. Well, I've I've got two, one bigger and one that fits your with your smaller category. Let me start with the smaller. Um, uh, I and I've written about this. I found it fascinating that Biden and she, within three months of each other, were competing for Vietnam's good graces. Uh, I think this is going to continue. I think that it is a signal uh, on the one hand that uh, the United States is going to continue to pursue essentially the policy that Kurt Campbell laid out, which is line up as many allies as it can, and if not allies, friends, uh, to get China's attention that it really needs to start backing off in the South China Sea. Uh, and uh, on the other hand as well, uh, to start uh, to go beyond simply something like port visits in Vietnam, um, but maybe step them up or even have some kind of uh, repair facility, which is the way it started out with Singapore. So I think that one's worth watching. Um, uh, the larger issue is simply this. It's, it's quite possible, we've talked about Biden's sinking polls. And you've got to ask yourself, why does he continue to support Israel when he knows it could cost him the election unless 
at the end of the day, maybe before it's Super Tuesday, because that's probably the latest he can do it, he decides he's really not running and he's already made up his mind and wants to go down in history as the guy who protected Israel against everything that was happening to it. That would be uh, a very uh, interesting outcome uh, indeed, if uh, many people do believe that at this moment that's uh, maybe less plausible, but it certainly will be very uh, interesting uh, to see. Michael, really quickly, do you do you buy that or not so much? Look, anything is possible. Uh, I think it's highly unlikely that uh, Biden is going to drop out of this race. Uh, I think the reason that Biden is running, I don't think Biden planned to run for re-election again, but I think that he feels he must run for re-election again because he beat Trump once before and he thinks he's the only one that can beat him again. Uh, I agree, which is the reason why he got into it in the first place was he thought he was the only person who could beat him uh, in order to win uh, win uh, the uh, presidency or at least defeat Trump. Um, uh, Jim and, and Patrick, what's on uh, your uh, docket for smaller yet interesting stuff uh, that you think the audience ought to be bearing in mind that, that happened this year? Jim and then Patrick. Well, two things. One is I still feel just it was a fascinating thing coming out of the crisis in Gaza where the administration rushed into Israel's side. And I no surprise. And I supported that. And we found that uh, a good part of the United States didn't agree with that, that there was a generational divide of uh, particularly young people um, who uh, who couldn't understand why we were supporting Israel this way and looked on Israel as this murderer, uh, you know, despite what has happened in the on the on the with that, all the uh, terrorist uh, terrorism uh, activity that happened that day. Uh, all of a sudden, the bad guys were Israel and they were running in and persecuting the poor Palestinians. It was fascinating that the assumptions, whether it was the administration or a lot of us in my generation, our generation, who spent years working in the government and working various crises, we've kind of gone along with an assumption that the generations behind us agreed with the general direction that we all were taking the country, we're Democrat and Republican over the past number of decades. Um, and I think what, what this has exposed is a younger generation, much younger generation, that for a lot of different reasons, uh, you can't assume they're going to agree with your your policy choices that you felt generations uh, before us uh, had put in place and that we agreed with. That in fact, there's a generational right. divide. And I think that's going to be for the next administrations as they go about dealing with crises, they can't assume uh, that the younger generations that are becoming more and more populous and beginning to get into government, that they will agree with a direction that this country has pursued for decades. I found that very interesting. That's the first thing. And the second and last thing, Vago, is we really don't know where Trump is going to be six, eight months from now legally. I mean, I, I you know, you hear different uh, predictions about whether the trials will be going on, et cetera, et cetera. But we could find ourselves in a peculiar situation uh, come uh, late summer, early fall um, with Trump's legal situation in terms of these various trials that are going on. Uh, so I think that's something not to, you know we should remember not to forget. That's going to be a real unknown, I think, going into next year, but particularly as we reach late summer, early fall. Patrick, your take. Reminded of you know Churchill saying that history is going to be kind to me because I'm going to write it. Um, it's it's the administration's Indo-Pacific. <laughs> go ahead, Patrick. Go ahead. History well, <laughs> should be kind to you, Doug. No, Doug but. Abbott. <laughs> Well, the Indo-Pacific team in the Biden administration has been um, just stalwart when it comes to building alliances and partnerships. That doesn't mean everything's gone perfectly well, hardly. It's a tough business, but they're going to continue to stay focused on this. So just as Dove was recommending, um, you know, keep pursuing the opportunities with Vietnam, which I'm sure they'll do. Um, looking back at 2023, you have to say that the Camp David summit, the trilateral cooperation among South Korea, Japan, the United States is historic. Um, it's amazing. Uh, and I think it's going to endure, even though it's not firmly institutionalized. I think it's going to endure in part because I think right out of the chute in beginning of 2024, we're going to have another North Korea crisis. Um, and I'll be able to explain that later, as you wish. Um, but um, I think that's going to continue to push these countries together. And I think that's great. I think also the AUKUS uh, sort of trilateral defense partnership among Australia, US and UK 
there were a lot of doubters, a lot of people, and, and even now, people doubting. But you you know, Vago, people in the Navy and so on, oh, we'll never get those Virginia-class submarines, you know, proved. I know we have hurdles to go, but at the end of 2023, it looks pretty good right now. And I think that the administration gets a lot of credit for building those kind of pillars of mini-lateralism with real security partners, not just paper security partners, uh, in a way that really does augment U.S. national interests in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and and go ahead. You said uh, you wanted to uh, explain something. Go ahead and explain it. Sure. Well, North Korea has, over the last two years, been busy trying to refine its missile arsenal, including its ICBM arsenal, the Hwasong-18 in particular, the longest range and heaviest uh, uh, sort of solid fuel ICBM that can strike the U.S. They haven't um, tested an ICBM without a lofted trajectory. So they sought to avoid essentially the potential red line of landing closer to Hawaii or Guam. I think they're going to change that in 2024. I think Kim Jong-un feels emboldened enough that he's going to try that. He thinks he's got Russia support and China support. Um, and I think that's the test. It may not come until October. So it's an October surprise for Biden. Um, or it may come right at the beginning of the year, right in January. Uh, that uh, is going to be very interesting. And when we get back on uh, January 5, uh, we can discuss that. Michael, uh, give us uh, the the two uh, or three things that you've got in mind that were smaller things, but you think no less important and worth mentioning. Sure. The first I'd say is I think that you know we have an education crisis uh, in this country uh, that gets little attention. And Democrats want to get rid of gifted and talented program because it makes people feel bad. And Republicans want to rage about CRT and ban Harry Potter. But meantime, 77% of the kids in this country between the ages of 17 and 24 are ineligible for military service. And part of that is because they can't read and write well enough to get into the military. So it hurts our recruiting. Secondly, China graduates six engineers for every one engineer that we graduate, and which means they're more likely to come up with that next generation technology that's going to dominate global commerce with the next generation uh, military technology. Uh, so this is something that we're gonna have to address. And it's also a key driver of poverty in this country. So, and now we see the failure of education on our universities and colleges across this country, where many of them have become you know, these woke, hateful, anti-Semitic incubators, graduating sizable numbers of kids with degrees in victim studies. And I think this is something that we're gonna have to take seriously uh, beyond uh, the, the, the culture wars that we're gonna see next year. Uh, secondly, uh, I think, you know, we, we're, we're here in our nation's capital, and this is a place where people from all over the country not only come to visit, but people from all over the world come here uh, to visit and to conduct business. And that now we see the largest increase in violent crime and, uh, of any major city in America is happening in D.C. and all areas of D.C., where it's becoming very dangerous for people to be, to be to live here, to work here, uh, and to travel here. And the time is coming for Congress to take control of the city like they did back in 1995 when they took the reins of power away from Marion Barry, because this is the capital city of America. We can't let this continue to stand. Uh, I, I, uh, I think it's uh, extraordinary. I've been a DC resident uh, with only one exception in almost the last 40 years. Uh, and I, I find it uh, extraordinary, uh, the backsliding that we have seen and the inability of the administration uh, to keep their eye on that ball. But then again, this is also an administration that let the Wizards and the Caps go to Virginia. So uh, exactly. alas, uh, I, I uh, point that out. Um, I, I do think, I mean, the, the thing which I think is fascinating and causing, I think, part of the challenge here is that a generation who grew up on social media has a tendency of being both judgmental and ideologically rigid sometimes uh, and shrill and are often there's a lack of nuance and an understanding of gray. Things are black and white. And so being pro-Palestinian and anti-Israel then transforms into almost like a two-dimensional anti-Semitism, unfortunately. Uh, and unfortunately, the other thing that we tend to see is the public is mad at China for whatever reason, right? Uh, COVID-19. Uh, and so unfortunately, Asian Americans pay a price for that. And in this case, I think that the anger being directed against Israel or directed against Bibi Netanyahu is then being translated into anger at Israel and then, you know, manifests itself as anti-Semitism without any nuance. And that's the thing that concerns me about what we're seeing right now is this sort of not an ability to see nuance. 
that this is representative of too many debates and discussions and it's bubbling up in this particular case where it's it's you know allowing people to to focus on it but it's toxic either way because the only way you run a democracy is through nuance it's well well vago vago it's let let's be clear it's you're absolutely right but the fundamental problem it goes beyond israel and beyond asians it is an inability to uh, see anybody that's different from yourself Correct. as anything but evil. Look, and Trump is the guy who's pushed this more than any other. If he becomes president, he's going to lock out Muslims once again. Um, he will lock out Africans because he considers them dirty countries. He will lock out all immigrants uh, from Latin America because he thinks they're all vermin. Uh, we've got a fundamental problem here which is that if you're different, you're somehow bad. That has to be fixed. Dove, uh, I agree with you. And and the thing is, right, it's not just those who grow up on social media. I think the, the power of this uh, anonymous, rigid criticism, chiming in on everything, it, it's just as made and cheapened and damaged uh, the the discourse, I think, and even the way people's brains are are wired. And then there are also those who are grossly taking advantage of the situation, right? I mean, brief TikTok videos where, you know, I, I think the Cooper Union got involved in this, a six minute video that was completely not representative of what actually transpired, but it then gets uh, a mind of its own. And oh, by the way, the Chinese and the Russians are in there uh, advancing and stoking anti-Semitism uh, for, for their own strategic interests, because the more divided we are, the, the, the better. So it's, you know, if I was Chinese and Russian, I'd want to get rid of Joe Biden too, uh, frankly. Um, anyway, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for being so generous and spending so much time with us uh, as you have all uh, year long. Uh, we couldn't do this without you guys. Hope you guys have terrific holidays, uh, a great uh, new year, and wishing everybody a happy, healthy, and prosperous 2024, uh, and look forward to working together with all of you uh, in the year to come. Thanks so very much, uh, and a very special thanks to our audience for joining us as you do. Special thanks uh, to uh, Bell and all of our sponsors uh, for their generous support that makes this program possible. Take care, have a great day, and we'll see you again soon.